If you don't know what we do on Wednesday, we're in what we call the Old Testament. Jesus called it the Law and the Prophets. And it's pretty much a history of the people that God raised up through whom he brings salvation to the whole world. And it's a history of their failure. Okay, they need the salvation that God's going to bring through them as much as we, that it's been brought to, need his salvation. That's pretty much the story. God chose these descendants of Abraham, and he said, through you, I'm going to bring in you all families of the earth will be blessed. It's a record of the failure, but it's also a record of God's faithfulness because God won't let them go. He won't give up on them. He will spank them. Jen makes fun of me because I keep repeating that word, spank. But that's what it is. Chasten, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he spanks. He disciplines. You know, some people call it the judgment of God. But he never lets go of them. He brings them back. He finishes what he started. Because he's faithful. We're messed up, and God's faithful. That's pretty much the story in a nutshell. (laughs) We need help, and God's come to help us, okay? By the time we get to Hosea, Hosea is a prophet, and he's speaking to the ten northern tribes. The kingdom has been split by now. And the ten northern tribes have completely turned their back on God. They were not worshiping God as God prescribed. They were turning to idols, They made their own gods out of wood and stone and overlaid them with silver and gold and they were bowing to these idols and Hosea was warning them, God's going to spank you. (laughs) It's going to hurt. He wants you to turn back to him so that you can know him because the whole reason you exist is to know God that you might make him known to the world. You know, part of the reason why God was spanking his people was because it's through them he's bringing the knowledge of God to me and you. So it's partly his love for you that he was spanking them because they're the ones that are to make God known to the whole world. So we start into Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself according to the multitude of his fruit. Here is a very common picture that the prophets spoke of in terms of Israel as being a vineyard, God's vineyard. Now, Isaiah the prophet, we're going we're gonna to read some passages out of Isaiah. We're going to continue in Hosea, Hosea, but we're going to look at Isaiah here for a second. Isaiah was a prophet at the exact same time as Hosea. They were contemporaries, okay? And Isaiah also spoke of Israel, God's people, as a vineyard. Look at what he says there in Isaiah 5, starting in verse 5. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard. On a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared it of its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. 
He built a tower in the midst, and he also made a wine press. And so he expected them to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes, useless grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. Notice how Isaiah is referring to the people, God's people, as his vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do. I will take away the hedge of protection, and it shall be burnt, and break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns, I will also command the clouds that they will bring no more rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There he flat out just says it. And the men of Judah, the southern kingdom, are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, and behold, a cry for help. They had turned from idols, they had turned to idols away from God, now, God is the source of love, okay? And God, all he expected his people was to draw off of him and bring the love to one another. Do you know that if you love, you've, you've fulfilled the law? It says this in the New Testament in Romans. Love is the fulfillment of the entire law. You know, when, our, we're raising our, when our kids were little, Every little thing that was going on, they were getting in trouble for. We would just ask them, are you loving your teacher? You know, smart-mouthing back to them, disrespecting them? Because it's all, all of our disobedience is just a lack of love. If you commit adultery with your neighbor's wife, you're not loving her, nor her husband, nor your spouse. It's just a, it's a, it's a lack of love. Okay? And so here, God's purpose for our lives, for his people's lives, in case you forgot and you're unaware, if you're a believer in Jesus, maybe you're not a descendant of Abraham, but you're a believer in Jesus, you're a believer in Israel's Messiah. Okay, Christians don't often think of that, but it's the reality If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we say Christ, which is the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, you're a believer in Israel's Messiah, and it tells us in Romans 9, 10, and 11, amazing stuff there, that you've been grafted into the people of God through faith in Israel's Messiah. You are now a full-fledged member of the household of God. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19, I don't have it on the screen, but you can write that down, Ephesians two nineteen. It says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people. This is with the people of Israel and also members of his household, the household of God. And you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. And so as his people, 
This is speaking to us. We are his vineyard. And I'll show you in a second how Jesus affirms this. Okay, we're his vineyard and his purpose, his purpose in our lives is that we bear fruit unto God. Okay, it's that simple. I don't know what you think the Christian life is, but the whole purpose of the people of God, of in our, God's purpose in our lives is that we bear fruit unto God, to his glory, which is always to our greater joy. Okay? This is God's purpose in our lives. Not that you run around and you try to be a good girl or a good boy. You can't. Okay? You can act like it, and that's what a hypocrite is. Do you realize that? A hypocrite is an actor. Okay? I can't produce. <laughs> I can't produce what God's looking for in our lives. I can't produce it. I don't have it in me. God's not looking for you to go out and try to be a better girl or a better boy. Or to act like you're doing great. Okay? He wants fruit. Okay? He wants fruit that comes only by our connection with him. Listen to Jesus in John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, okay, a vine, a grapevine, and my father is the vine dresser. Okay? He's the one who owns the vineyard. Every branch in me, Jesus says, that doesn't bear fruit, he lifts it up is the actual Greek. He lifts it up. And every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean through the word that I've spoken to you. You're clean. We're clean because of Jesus. We're already clean. He says, abide in me. Abide means just be with me, hang out with me, be, be connected to me. You know, if I go out on a breakfast date with my wife. To abide with her means I'm not looking at my phone the whole time. I'm looking in her eyes. And we're talking. And we're, we're, we're just talking about life and how, what God's done and our kids. And we're abiding. We're connected, you know. This is what God says. This is what he wants. I want you to abide in me. And I in you. This is intimacy. As the branch can't bear fruit of itself... You can't go out running around trying to be something that God's going to go, oh, that's what I was looking for. You're such a great guy. He doesn't, he's not interested in any of that. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. In other words, just stay with me. Just stay with me. Just hang out with me. Just rest in me. Just be with me. Stop running around trying to be a good Christian. You're not a good Christian. You suck at this just like I do. Just be with me in my presence. And, and what, he's, what he means here is that as you let my love in, you let it work in you, then eventually it'll work through you and that's everything I want in your life. That's everything I want. I don't want anything else. His love coming to you, working in you, and then through you. 
Stop trying to be a Christian. Be with Jesus. Consider his great love for you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. You know? Don't, it doesn't say fixing your eyes on yourself. You'll get discouraged, like Corey Ten Boom said. Look around, you'll be distressed. Look within, you'll be depressed. Look at him, you'll be at rest. Okay? That's what we're called to, not to look away from our wretched selves to him. And your mind, your heart, your soul will be blown away by his love for you, for sinners. And then that love working in you will work through you. And that's everything that God wants. That's the whole Christian life. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have not love, I'm nothing. If I have all knowledge of the Bible and I can argue theology, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and I prophesy but I have not love. It's, it's all worthless. Why? Because it's his love working in us and through us is everything he wants. That's all he wants. There's nothing else. Now, if you come to that place where you're resting in him and staying with him and abiding in him and letting him, his love get in and it works through you, you're going you're gonna to rock the world. You're going to rock your world. Because there'll be this, the power of God working through the love of God through your life. It's not that, it's not that resting in him and connecting with him is just going to equal some lazy person that's not, nothing's happening through you. No. The world will be changed around you all the time, every day, everywhere you go, every person you encounter. It's just one of those paradoxes of the kingdom of God where less is so much more. If you're running around trying to be a good Christian, you're not going to be bearing any fruit. People are going to look at you going, there's an oppressive person, religious person that's all tired out by their religion, and I don't want anything to do with that. So give it up. I give it up. I quit. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm just going to be with Jesus. Watch what will happen through your life. Watch out. God wants our lives to be fruitful. We're his vineyard. We're his vineyard. You know, this is what he wants. Jesus didn't say, my father is the factory owner and I am the factory foreman and you are a worker. Produce. He cracks the whip. More. More widgets. Make more widgets. He didn't say that. He said, my father is the vine dresser. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who's connected to me will bear much fruit. That's so peaceful, so restful. Stop moving. Stop trying. Be with him and watch what happens to your life. Watch what happens. But here at this time, Israel, in their history, they were bearing fruit, but not unto God. They were, they, were lived, they, were, they were blessed by God, but they were offering it to the promotion of idolatry. And that's what the indictment is here in Hosea 10.1. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. 
according to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. This is these pagan uh, altars of their idols. According to the bounty of his land, the blessing that I've poured out on them, the material blessing, they've taken it all and they've embellished their idolatrous altars and pillars. That's the indictment here. You're letting my blessing take you into ruin. Their heart is divided. Notice there, verse 2. It's interesting, this Hebrew word for divided is also translated elsewhere as the word smooth or flattering. It, it, can, it can accurately be translated as divided, but it can also be saying their heart is smooth and flattering. It's like a guy telling his wife he loves him while he goes out and cheats on her and then comes back, I love you so much. That's the idea, divided. But this smooth operator, right? Remember that song, smooth operator, some guy cheating everywhere he goes. They use the name of God. They say, praise the Lord, you know. But then they're using the blessing of God for committing spiritual adultery, for not being with him, not staying connected to him. God wants us, all of us, undivided. This is what he wants. Okay, Jesus, or James says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. David prayed. David understood, because we struggle with this, the divided heart. David prayed, unite my heart, O God, to fear your name. In other words, I struggle with a divided heart. I, just, I struggle with being this smooth operator. I don't want to be this, but I struggle with this. Now they are held guilty, he says. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. In other words, God is saying here that he's going to do in judgment what they should have done in repentance. They should have broken down these altars to their pagan idols that they had made. God says, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to bring it all down. These images that were lies. We've talked about this before. Isaiah chapter 44, write that down. In the, in the, Isaiah tells us that an idol is a lie. Is not this an, a lie, Isaiah says, in, in your hand? That's why God hates idols, because they're misrepresentations of him. They're, they're the thoughts of, what do you think God is? You know, and they carved it into wood and stone and overlaid it with silver and gold, but it's lies, it's misrepresentations. Have you ever been lied about? Has someone ever slandered your name, spread misinformation about you? It's infuriating, isn't it? You know why it is? Because the people that believe and receive those lies, they're all weird when they're around you. They keep a distance from you. Because someone told them something about you, and now it, it's polluted these people's minds, and they can't trust you. Oh, watch out for old Greg. You know, he's, he, what, you know what he did over here. And next thing you know, you're all weird about me. If you want to know about me, I'll tell you from the pulpit, but come and talk to me. If you want to know about someone, go talk to them. Don't listen to, because slander is a huge thing in this world. 
There's people all day long. It's, it, the word devil actually in the Greek is the, it literally means slanderer. Okay? This is why God hated these idols because it was polluting the minds of his own people and it was keeping them at a distance from God. That's why he hates the idols. Because he wants the truth of God to be in their minds, which brings them close to God into that connection where they would bear the fruit that God desires, the fruit of love in their lives. At the point of every bondage in your life, in my life, is a lie. That at some point, I believed it and I received it. And this is the glory of God come in Christ that we might know the truth about who God is and be made what? Free. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth. What does that mean? It means he's the truth about what God is like. You know, it tells us in Hebrews chapter one, the very first verse, that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of God's being. So when we look at Jesus, we see the truth about God. God is revealed in Christ. Really? That's God? He's come to save me, a wretched sinner, to lay his life down for me? He hasn't come to kick me in the head and kick me out and spit on me? You can't be looking at Jesus and have that thought in your head. But that's the thought that every pagan has in their head about God. Zeus is going to throw a lightning bolt at you because he's angry. That's a pagan, idol, idolatrous idea about God. If I look at Jesus, he's come to take away my sin so that I can draw near to God, that I can be with him, that I might bear fruit unto God, because that's what God wants. We're his vineyard, you see? Now they say, we have no king, because we did not fear the Lord. As for a king, what would he do for us? They were weakened in their idolatry and their sin, and now foreign powers began to dominate Israel in Hosea's day. They're like, we have no king. They were in bondage to a foreign power. You know, if you're not drawing your life from God, if you don't let him tell you who you are, what you're worth, what your standing is before him, there will be another, there'll be another power that will let you know. They'll lie to you about who you are, what you're worth, what your standing is before God, and it will equal total fear total guilt. You'll be kept at a distance from God. That's why it's so important that we look to Jesus. God has told us who we are in Christ. He's told us what we're worth and what our standing is, and it's all in Christ crucified. God so loved the world. You, you know who you are? You're highly loved of God. That's your identity. What are you worth? He gave his son for you. I can't even fathom that. Unfathomable worth. 
What is my standing before God? I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, fully accepted in the beloved. You see, it's all in the cross of Christ. Here's the truth. And what does it affect in me? I, I relax in God's presence. I rest. I be with him. And what does that do? His love gets in. It works in me. Then it begins to work through my life. And there's the fruit that God wants. The fruit of the spirit is what? Love. And it's manifest in all these other things. Joy, peace, patience, meekness, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. But it's love. The fruit of the spirit, singular, is love. This is where God, everything that God's doing in our lives, it brings us to that place. They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant, God says. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. When God brought the law through Moses, he, he said, okay, I'm, uh, if you want to be in this covenant with me, if you keep my commandments, if you do all that I say in my law, then I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless you in this land that I'm giving you. And instead of the people saying, God, help us. We can't do it. Help us when we fall. Be gracious. Instead of saying, God, we, we're, without you, we're unable. Instead, they said, we'll do everything you command. <laughs> We'll keep all your laws. So God says, yeah, you've spoken falsely in making your covenant. You know, relying on themselves to pull it off, they did nothing but fail. And that's the record of the Old Testament, the failure of the people. And thus judgment springs up like hemlock, this poisonous plant in the furrows of the field. You know, they're boasting in their self-confidence. Their boasting in self-confidence led to spiritual death and total failure. It's like when Jesus told his disciples, you're all gonna forsake me. Remember that? Jesus had all of his disciples there right before he went to the cross. He said, by the way, all of you guys are gonna bail on me. And Peter said, not me. If, even if these 11 knuckleheads, these other guys, even if they bail, I will never forsake you. And you know who fell the worst and the hardest? It was Peter. He's the one who denied he even knew the Lord three times. And Jesus even told him, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny you've known me three times. And Peter did. And he wept. He was so disappointed in himself. Are you disappointed in yourself? If you're disappointed in yourself, you know what it shows? It shows that you've been trusting in yourself. So you failed. So you're discovering what God has already told you over and over. It's not a surprise to him. So now put your trust in the Lord. It's that simple. Oh, but I failed. I can't do it. Yeah, God's already told you. You can't do it. <laughs> he's not surprised. He's just been waiting for you to catch up to what he's already told you. Now put your trust in the Lord. And you'll find that you're not as dis you won't be disappointed in yourself if you're not trusting in yourself. Do we trust in ourselves? Is that what we do as Christians? 
Paul was talking about these legalistic guys that trusted in their religious works. And he said, we are the circumcision who trust in Christ Jesus, rejoice in the Holy Spirit, and we put no confidence in our flesh. Okay, we're the, we're the ones, Paul said, that are walking in what God has. We, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. You know, we, we, we walk in the Holy Spirit and we put no confidence in the flesh. Because if you do, you're gonna be constantly disappointed in your poor performance. Like the children of Israel in the Old Testament. God gave them the, these commandments and they're like, like Peter, we will do it all. Wrong answer. <laughs> you should have said, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. The Lord went and found Peter after he failed. You know, he left the whole thing. He went back to fishing. He was like, I failed so bad that I'm done. I'm f***ed up. I have no future in ministry. Jesus went and found him. He was, he was out there and fishing. And Jesus called him in. He was cooking some fish on the shore for Peter. And Peter he was out there fishing naked, okay? I don't, I don't know what that was about, but he, he jumped in the water and he swam to shore and he grabbed Jesus by his ankles and he said, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He's grabbing him, not letting him go, but he's saying, you should leave me, I'm so sinful. He was broken. The Lord's like, I'm not going anywhere and you're not going anywhere. I'm not done with you, I'll never be done with you. And Peter became a pillar in the early church. He became a pillar. He became less self-confident because of his failure, and he became more confident in God. And when he did, God used him to rock the world. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth Avon. What in the world is that? <laughs> Beth-Avon is a name that Hosea gave to the town called Bethel. 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 Okay, Bethel means house of God. This is where Abraham stood when God promised him. He said, Abraham, come out here and look. Look at the stars. Your descendants will be like the stars. Innumerable. He said, look to the east, the west, and the south. As far as you can see, I'm giving you this land and your descendants. It was there at Bethel. It's the place where Jacob slept one night. Jacob, he was running from his brother Esau because he stole the birthright from his brother. And Esau was hunting him to kill him. And on the run, he was so exhausted, he stopped in this place called Bethel. It wasn't even a town at that time. And he slept with his head upon a rock. And he had a guilty conscience because of what he did. He ripped his brother off. And he was exhausted and he's got a rock for his pillow. And he had a wild dream that night where he saw, he dreamed of this ladder that connected heaven and earth. And God was at the top and the angels of God were ascending and descending upon this thing. And he woke up out of his sleep and he was like, wow. Jacob actually named the place Bethel. This is the house of God. He said, God was in this place and I didn't even know it. I wasn't aware of it. 
And it was there that God promised this little conniving little rat, this little deceptive guy named Jacob. (laughs) I love the fact that God called Jacob. If God can be the God of Jacob, he can be my God. I love the fact that God uses these total weak, sinful characters, you know? And it was there in that place that God spoke, you're going to go home, Jacob. You're going to return back to your home, and I'm going to bless you and prosper you. He showed this incredible grace. This is the place, Bethel, where all this happened. But Hosea now is calling Bethel, he's calling it Beth-Avon, which means house of idols. Because they they turned the place into a center of idolatrous worship. It was there in Beth-El that Hosea is calling Beth-Avon that Jeroboam had placed the golden calf, a massive idol, so that the southern most tribes of the northern kingdom could worship this idol. Up in Dan, there was another golden calf. They were worshiping the golden calf. God's people. Okay? The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth Avon. The, the ones in the, in the south are looking at what's gone on in the north and they're like, the people are mourning. The priests are shrieking because the glory has departed. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria. This, this idol that you've made, that you've overlaid with gold. The very people that are going to invade you and carry you into exile and into slavery, they're going to take your idol because it's so pretty and it's made of such precious metals. The whole thing's coming down is what God is saying. The idol will be carried to Assyria as a present to King Jerob, the king of Assyria. Ephraim will receive shame, and Israel will be ashamed of his own counsel. For As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes. Okay, this is where the idol worship was happening, and also the high places of Avon, here this Beth-Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed, the thorn and thistle shall grow on the altars, the place is gonna be completely decimated. It's gonna be like a ghost town where there's just weeds growing up in the cracks of everything. And they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. This is a thing of shame. God's saying this place that you're worshiping these idols, the very place, this is poetic. They're going to say, cover us, because we're so ashamed. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. Okay? If you remember, when we studied the book of Judges, shortly after they came into the promised land... In this place called Gibeah, which was part of the, the, it was an area of the tribe of Benjamin, the most violent and perverted acts of atrocities were carried out there. If you remember the story, horrific sexual violence. You can read about it. I don't want to get into it. If you can stomach it, 
in Judges 19 and 20, unreal, evil, that these people, these, they were a part of Israel. They committed these unbelievable atrocities of sexual violence. It's, it's amazing what humans are capable of. I lived in Yugoslavia for a year, and I happened to be there the year that Milosevic, the crazy dictator who ended up dying in The Hague on what, you know, he was on trial for war crimes. But he began to attack all the other areas of Yugoslavia, and it broke up. But I was hearing from kids, because I was pastoring a church there in, in Serbia, northern Serbia, near the Hungarian border, and they were putting the Hungarian kids on the front lines of Milosevic's war. Some of them went because they felt like I need to obey the government. Others of them escaped. They got on trains at night and held to the bottom of trains and went off into Hungary and jumped off into the fields. I don't know if you guys know Attila Juhas. He was the youth pastor here for 14 years. But he was one of those Hungarian kids in Serbia that was like, I'm not gonna serve in this madman's war. And he escaped into Hungary. And then he got, we got him up at the Bible College here up at Twin Peaks. And then one time he came down when I was visiting my old youth group and he led worship. And Jim Shear, who used to be the youth pastor after I was gone, he's like, why don't you be our youth pastor? <laughs> but Attila was one of those guys that got out of there. But these kids were coming back from this war, Milosevic's war, 1990, 1991. And they were just telling of these unbelievable atrocities that were happening on the war front. Much like the atrocities that just happened in the kibbutz, the kibbutzim on the, in, the, at the, in the south of Israel, where these Hamas terrorists did things. I, 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 I can't even, I haven't even told one person the stuff that we saw because it's so horrific that I don't want that in anybody's head. The stuff that was done. This was the stuff that was done in Gibeah. You can read about it if you're into that kind of thing. I, it's so upsetting what happened in Judges 19 and 20. But when that did happen with this, these people in Israel, part of the tribe of Benjamin, the whole nation, all of the men of Israel came against these people and their atrocities, and they, they, they were destroying the whole, they were gonna kill the whole tribe of Benjamin to root out this evil from their midst, and God stopped them so that the tribe of Benjamin could continue on. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity, and it did not overtake them. God didn't allow them to completely annihilate it's one thing when a people commits these type of atrocities and everybody accepts it. It's another thing when this thing happens and the people rise up and say, no more. This is not, we're not about this. Okay? God says, when it's my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions, their idolatry and these horrific sexual crimes that happened there in Judges 19 and 20. God hates that stuff. And it happened in, in, among Israel, but Israel didn't stand for it because God doesn't stand for it. The people rose up to root it out. 
You know, when someone's a good governor of a town, it doesn't mean there's no crime in that town. It means that they get on it and they find who's, who's committing these crimes and they isolate them from the rest of the community to protect the rest of the people. A good governor will have crime in his jurisdiction because people are in his jurisdiction. It's just that what is he doing about it? Is he letting it go on and everybody's getting hurt? Or are they stepping in and going, stop, you are going to be in jail. <laughs> We're going to isolate you from the rest of the population. We're going to prosecute these heinous acts. That's a good governor. A good pastor is not someone where nothing ever happens in the church that's wrong. Because there's people in the church. And we want people to come. We want people that don't know God to come in here. You know, but today, you know, something happens in a church and the, the media puts it in the spotlight going, look at this, these people. What do you mean, look at these people? We're trying to lead people to God and to God's ways and there's gonna be things that are messy. What do we do about it? That's the question. We deal with it. We don't let people come in here and just wreak havoc. You know, we've called the police. We've called CPS. Child Protective Services, you know, because we're responsible. And yet we want people with struggles and problems to come here because those, those are the people that need Jesus, you know. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain. Okay, the oxen that, that treaded out the grain, it was a good job because God had said in his law to the people of Israel, don't muzzle the ox who treads out the grain. So the ox was allowed to eat the very grain that he was, he was pulling the big grind wheel, right? So to be a heifer that treaded out the grain meant you were fat and happy. <laughs> and God's saying, Ephraim, the biggest tribe in the north, they are like this heifer that loves to thresh grain. Ephraim is fat and happy in the blessing that I've blessed him with in abundance. But God says, I've harnessed her fair neck and I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob will break his clods. Hosea, notice his plea to those who have made such a mess in their idolatry and sin. He's, here, here, here comes the, the heart of this chapter. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he rains righteousness upon you. The idea here, this is a very agrarian culture, right? Maybe you don't understand fallow, I think you all do, fallow ground, you get it. Sowing and reaping, planting seeds and here, God's pleading with his people, sow righteousness and you'll reap mercy. You know, he says, break up the fallow ground. What is the fallow ground? It's the ground that hasn't been plowed this year. You know, if you've ever had a piece of land and planted plants and the, the top layer can get hard. Before you plant, you gotta break up the soil. They take the plow or you take a shovel and you turn the soil over and you put you know, mulch in there, whatever. Fertilizer. And then you plant. This is God. He's saying, sow for yourselves righteousness and you'll reap mercy. 
break up the fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord. All of your problems, he's speaking here to the northern tribes, all of the the collapse that's coming is because you haven't been seeking me. You've been worshiping your idols. You've been living in sin. Sow for yourselves righteousness and you'll reap mercy. Break up the fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains down righteousness upon you. Our hearts, this is speaking of the human heart metaphorically in a poetic way. But our hearts tend towards hardness. My heart tends towards hardness. Over the years, my heart has tended toward and started becoming hard, and it scares me. And then I remember these passages. Sow for yourselves righteousness, Greg. You know, break up the fallow ground. Begin to seek me. Call upon me. And then God comes in. And he softens my heart. You know, all the trials and tribulations in this world, all the struggles of this life, all the disappointments, the heartaches and heartbreaks, they can harden our hearts. All the times I run to something besides God to comfort myself, my heart can become hard and callous. And I've experienced this in cycles over the years. So the call is to sow righteousness that we might reap mercy, but first we need to break up the fallow ground. You know, that hardened surface of the soil of our hearts. Break it up, he says. Why? So that the seed might get down and that the fruit might be born that God's looking for. Notice, break it up until he comes and rains righteousness upon us. Israel had sown the seeds of lies. Their idols are lies, remember? And sin. And they were soon to reap this judgment that Hosea is warning about. Even now, God is saying, even now if you sow to righteousness, you can reap a harvest of mercy. You know? There's a, spirit, there's a physical law of sowing and reaping. Okay, you sow... 100 corn kernels, you're going to reap 100 corn stalks that have multiples ears of corn in each. You know, you sow watermelon seeds, you're going to get watermelons. You sow cantaloupes, you're going to get cantaloupes. You sow tomatoes, then you're going to get tomatoes. There's a spiritual law of reaping and sowing and reaping. If I sow to my flesh, I'm going to reap corruption. Things are going to fall apart. If I sow to the Spirit, I'm going to reap life and joy and peace. Okay? A lot of people that have sown only to their flesh and they've, their whole life is complicated. Their pain is unbelievable. Their relationships are so complicated because of sin. They come to Christ. You know what? When you come to Christ, you're forgiven. But you still reap what you sow. Your life, you've, you've made your life complicated. But you know what? If you begin to sow to the Spirit, you begin to sow to righteousness, you know what's going to grow up? You might be in a forest right now of chaos because all you've done is sow chaos. But stop sowing chaos. And you know what? Forests burn down. Trees fall apart. Beetles eat it down. If you start sowing to the Spirit... 
five years, 10 years from now, you'll be living in a whole new forest. Stop sowing chaos. Break up the fallow ground. Let the seed get deep. And the whole time you're forgiven. Some of you, your lives are so complicated and so, it's like just there's a wretchedness. But God's with you. It's like when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed, who was one of his trusted men. He reaped the rest of his life wretched, wretched fruit. And he regretted it. But you know what? The the moment he confessed his sin, he was forgiven. So, okay, if God will forgive me, then I'll just keep sowing to the flesh. Are you that stupid? So, so to the Spirit, and you will, you will live in this beautiful place of fruitfulness and a garden. Start sowing to the, to the Spirit and watch what God does. And if you feel too weak, join a small group of people where you can be accountable, where you can t- talk about your weaknesses. And it's hard to fall down when you're standing in a, a crowd of people that are close enough to each other. You fall over and you, I got you, man. But if you're all by yourself, it's easy to fall down. There's no one there. Every Christian should be in a little tight group. Women, I believe, with women, because you can share things that you can't share in front of men. Men with men, where you can get real honest. Okay? I get honest here, but man, I get really honest with my my bros. Because I need to. Because I want to stand. I don't want to fall. Okay, so so righteousness. <coughs> Reap mercy. Break up the fallow ground. <coughs> it's time to seek the Lord. You've plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Idol of your idols. Because you trusted in your own way. I know what I'm doing here. blows my mind someone who thinks they're so smart yet their whole life is chaos you're not smart you're a fool okay wisdom is seen in the life that works okay okay so you've been foolish now be wise you've sown to the flesh to wickedness and you've reaped this chaos come to the Lord he'll forgive you And then he'll be with you as you begin to plant a whole new forest, a whole new garden that you're going to live in. We reap what we sow. Okay? Because you trusted in your own way. I know what I'm doing. You know what? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't. (laughs) I don't know how to be a husband. I need to hold on to the Lord. I pray a lot. Not because I'm spiritual, because I don't know what I'm doing. And there's a lot on the line. There's a lot that I could wreck. That's why I pray. Not because I'm spiritual, because I'm not spiritual and I need help. The Pharisee prays because he's trying to look all holy and spiritual. The real Christian prays because, oh God, I need you. Help me. I can't do this. I don't want to mess everything up. I don't want to wreck my life, ruin my wife, lose the respect of my kids, lose my ministry. Help me, God. And then everyone looks going, look how spiritual he is. No. 
I'm praying because I'm not spiritual and I need help. (laughs) Therefore, tumult shall arise from among your people and your fortresses shall be plundered as Shalman. This is short for Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, who plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle. In the first invasion of the Assyrians, they came in and plundered in the northern part of the kingdom, the whole Galilee region. They plundered this place called Beth Arbel. Hosea is saying, seek God now. Turn to the Lord. So to righteousness, you'll reap mercy. Break up the fallow ground. Turn back to God who is your strength before Assyria finishes the job and comes completely down to the southern part of the northern kingdom. Before the mothers are dashed in pieces, the horrors of war, the Assyrians were brutal. As brutal as Hamas, as brutal as the Serbs were to the Croatians and the Croatians to the Serbs that I was witness of. He's warning Turn back. And thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At the dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. And so that's how the chapter ends. These guys have made a mess. They're going to reap what they sow, but there's hope. They can turn. And God's saying something to somebody right now, maybe here on the internet. You're about to wreck your life, ruin your wife, lose the respect of your kids. God's saying, turn back. Oh, but I know what I'm doing. Do you? I know what I'm doing, said Peter. I'm, I know how to do this. No, that's the wrong answer. I don't know how to do this. I need to hold to God. I need to be in a fellowship of people that can hold me up. I need to pray. I need to turn up the fallow ground. That's the right answer. That wisdom will be seen in my life that is built and it works. See what God's saying? Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God, for your love for us your desire that we bear fruit to your glory and our joy, that our lives work, that they're built. Lord, we thank you that you came to save us because we've all messed up. (laughs) We've all sinned and every one of us falls short of the glory of God. Lord, we need you. We need you as much now as we've ever needed you. And we pray, God, that as we begin to seek you, you would turn up the fallow ground, the hard, sh- the hard surface of our hearts, and your word, your seed would get in there. And you would truly, Lord, bear fruit, the fruit of your love, of your joy, your peace, your patience and kindness and meekness and gentleness and self-control in our lives. We ask, God, that you would do this in us to your glory and what? to our greater joy. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said out loud, amen, amen. Blessings upon you. Again, if you need prayer for anything, if you want to receive the Lord tonight, the guys in the prayer room would love to pray with you. I'm going to be down on the edge of the stage. You can come pray with me. See you next time. God bless.